Thessalonians. Father God, I pray that you would present yourself yourself to us in truth and the marvelous glory of your gospel. Pray that you would change your people by the power of your word. Pray that you would move in conviction by your Holy Spirit. Ask that this word, which is living and active and sharper, and any double-edged sword would penetrate the areas of our heart and our life and our mind that are left um, kept from you, even though we are all laid bare before you, that we would duly acknowledge the reality that we are completely open and known by you, and that we would be a people open to you changing our hearts and our minds. Lord, your word alone does that. Father, we also want to worship you through this word, through this truth. We want to know more of you. We want to have more reason to praise. We want to have more confidence in the life wholly devoted to you. You've given us plenty already. And you have plenty more. And so we seek that in this hour. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you for keeping it for us. Thank you for bringing us to a point in history where you desire for us to hear it and understand it. And so we come with open hands before you with great need as your children, as your sheep, maybe even as sinners don't know you. Lord, I pray that you would do much in this hour through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We will begin now our look into 2 Thessalonians. Uh, you can go ahead and put that outline up on the screen. I like to know before I start a book in the Bible, the whole just of it. I like to know where we're going so that when you begin to dive into the parts, you can see how all the parts relate and you can remember back, oh, okay, this is coming or this happened. So the fact that he's saying this helps me put that in context and connect it with what's going on. So before I ever begin a book, I, I like to see an outline. And, and John MacArthur has been pretty helpful for us here in making a very simple outline for Second Thessalonians. You can think of it this way, sandwiched in between the greeting and the benediction, uh, which are almost identical to those in 1 Thessalonians. You have comfort for affliction in chapter 1. You have correction for prophetic error in chapter 2. And you have Paul's concern for the church in chapter 3. Very simple outline, very simple way to break this letter down. Very simple way for you to keep that in mind as you uh, yourself read through and work through this letter, both in this season and in seasons to come. And uh, I'm very glad to uh, just jump right over into the second letter. You know, it's very fitting that we would jump straight into Second Thessalonians from First Thessalonians because they are very closely related, not only in content, but also just in time. Uh, in comparing this letter to First Thessalonians, uh, we can sort of gather that this was written within one year of the first letter to the Thessalonians. And this was probably written during Paul's year and a half in Corinth, which you can read about in Acts 18. This is obviously from 
the very first verse, the very first words of this letter, the same missionary team from 1 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. They're still together. They're still working. They're still caring about this church. And we can understand that because it's a very intimate letter. They care very deeply about this church. These are the only two letters Paul writes to a people or to a church in which he doesn't give himself a title. I think which is very interesting. He doesn't call himself Paul the Apostle by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ or, or Paul this and that. He just says Paul, Silvanus, Timothy. And then at the end he says, I, Paul, write this in my own hand. Okay, he's not giving himself a title. There is a great pastoral concern and love for this church and these people. Very intimate letter. This also has the same themes. There's still persecution. Obviously, as not much time has passed between these two letters. Uh, there's still discussion about the second coming of Christ and the end times. There's still confusion there. There's still false teaching there. And all of chapter 2 will deal with that. And there's also, related to that, still this problem within the church of idleness. Related to the second coming, thinking that it's already happened or that it is happening very soon. So there's been a group of people within this church who have decided to stop all activity in the name of Christ. Stop all work even and just sit and wait for Jesus to come. Paul corrects that um, as he did in 1 Thessalonians. Thinking forward in history related to this letter and these people, Paul actually returns to Macedonia or Greece where Thessalonica was located as the capital, the Roman capital of Macedonia. He returns there on his third missionary journey and is again driven out, as he was the first time, by unbelieving Jews. You can read about that in Acts 20, verses 3 through 4. So the same problems are plaguing the, the Thessalonian church uh, year after year for some time. Okay, These aren't quickly going away, which is going to really inform what Paul is asking them to pray for in chapter 1, um, verses 5 through 12. He's going to inform their life in the midst of what they're having to deal with. And this is also very interesting, the fact that Paul feels such intimacy and love for them because Paul really hasn't spent much time with them. A few months at most in person, and then he's driven out by the Jews. He's there as long as he can bear it, as long as uh, it is not completely interrupted, and then he's moving on and he is sending back Timothy, remember, from 1 Thessalonians. He's sending him back to check on them. And he hears that things are continuing to go well, even though there's always going to be problems within any church. Most of the things are going well in the Thessalonican church. They're bearing fruit. They're being faithful under persecution. They are displaying evidence that they are a truly converted church. And it seems odd to say that, right? To say that about a church, a truly converted church. But we're going to talk about here in a little bit why that's important to make that distinction. And in fact, what those characteristics are of a church that is uh, truly converted. Now, this being the Roman capital of Macedonia at the time, there was a lot of prominent people, a lot of prominent businesses, a lot of prominent things going on in Thessalonica. One of them was not the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. It was not the most prominent thing in the city. Which points to the fact that it's not the most worldly thing in the city. But it's a genuinely converted, fruitful, and faithful church whose influence, whose fruit has served through the centuries to encourage the current church even now. So even though you have all these things which men looked at in Thessalonica and thought, wow, that's amazing, or wow, that person's great, or wow, that group of people 
that's awesome. And this little church of people who followed this Nazarene, that's pathetic. Well, whose influence still remains? Whose influence has bore the most fruit? Who has the sovereign God of the universe used throughout the centuries to bless the world? That little church that followed that Nazarene. So there's a lot here that we can find um, encouragement from. There's a lot of similarities that we can find uh, with these people. <clears throat> and I, I think that's going to be a beautiful thing for us. And there's great comfort in, in the fact that we don't have to worry about being prominent in the world. We just have to worry about being faithful and subsequently fruitful in all that we are and all that we do. The Lord will do with that what He wills, probably more so than we imagine. If you go on our website, and uh, our dear Beverly Oder wrote uh, kind of a brief history for me to put on the website. If you go on our website and you click on About, you will find her short little excerpt about um, the history of FBC Holt. The first sermon ever preached here was uh, from Luke, and I forget the passage every single time, uh, but it was about uh, the little flock, right? And, and then she goes on very briefly to explain how the little flock has endured through the years and then come current history, COVID, which brought a unique uh, newness to our little flock, how that little flock uh, was used uh, and was fruitful even in the midst of what they had to endure back then. And so we're going to find some similarities there. And we're going to find some encur encouragement there. And we're going to find um, this beautiful, gracious, truth-informing love that Paul continues to show us that he has for this church. You read this letter in an intimate way. Now, as we shift gears here and begin to get into the text, we're going to investigate the greeting through the mind of this preacher. We're going to take a journey, just how it came down on page as I was studying this, so we're going to investigate many scriptures because we're going to let the Bible interpret itself. We're going to encounter these Christian themes and ideas and words and phrases that we often use and that we often read. And we're going to let the Bible interpret for us what that means. And in doing so, we're going to find the consistency across the scripture of these truths. So as you read your Bible, your cross-references are of utmost importance. And that's not just all of them. Whatever you see in your margin or at the bottom or top of your page, that is not all the cross-references that are needed for you to understand or to see the glory of God and the consistency of His Word. And why that is extremely important for us is because when you begin to see that these truths are explained and fleshed out and held um, in companion with each other throughout the, the years, throughout the writers, throughout the authors, you're seeing that a, that a sovereign God writes through human authors, and that's the common thread. And that the realities that they were faced with, the truths that they were taught by the apostles, are the same truths that you and I can have utmost confidence in today. Because you have a book that was put together in the most miraculous way and, and with such different people in, in different parts of the world experiencing different things, but yet they're all holding on to the same truths. And, and knowing your whole Bible, which sounds daunting, is extremely crucial to seeing, savoring, and finding security in those truths. And the truths we're going to look at today are 
or simply what it means when he says that we're in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, and how grace and peace come from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> because a greeting in a book that was written, written by God is not simply just a greeting. It is a uh, comforting call to remember who we are as God's people. So we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 as we begin this letter. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Real quickly, I want to look at what it means to be in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can simply read over that and we can say, well, you know, that just means we're God's people. Okay, that's true. That's one way to synthesize that. I get it. But I think that there is more to that. If the gospel is the glorious reality of sinners not only becoming reconciled to God, but becoming his children, and in fact finding their power, their peace, uh, all of it in him, if, if, we're, if we're found to be in him, if God is conforming us to his image, if we're, we're to be that place where he dwells, okay, then we need to understand what it means to be in. <clears throat> and Galatians 2.20 uh, really summarizes it in a beautiful way. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified, this is again Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That is Paul's understanding of what it means to be in Christ. That it's no longer just Paul, because as we've seen from Scripture, places like Ephesians 2 and Romans 3 and Romans 8, we are in and of ourselves children of wrath, dead sinners. But now, the reality of Christ being not only just our Lord and Savior, but present with us or our present life or even abiding in our hearts by His Spirit, we live that life by that power by that source, by that person, in the flesh. So we still live and breathe and talk and speak and touch and feel and taste, but we do so in Jesus, who has made himself a part of us. As we'll see later on, the dwelling place of God is with man. And that these bodies serve as temples for his Holy Spirit. So there is a real <coughs> reality of him being with us. This is what he promised in the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 20, right? To never leave us nor forsake us. Now, how's he going to do that? Is that just a sentimental um, uh, thought about how he's going to just kind of be around? No, that's. That is him actually literally speaking about being with you. So it kind of bothers me, which we don't do, but w when there have been songs sung when we invite the Holy Spirit. We don't invite the Holy Spirit. We are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. If you are his, if you have been called by his grace, if you have been born again, if you've been made a new creation, then the down payment or the, the sealing of your salvation is the giving of His Holy Spirit. Since the day of Pentecost, we've seen that as a reality. That is the constant state of the believer. The Holy Spirit is there. We need to stop disconnecting ourselves from Him. We live in relationship to Him 24-7, which helps us think more about a holy life. <clears throat> that he doesn't just go away when we go to bed or when we go to our bedroom. No, he's there. Keeping you, moving you, directing you, reminding you. He is constant companion. Jesus doesn't just say words to say words. 
Jesus has meaning and truth in everything he utters. That's why John said, listen, it would be impossible to, to contain in the world enough books to tell you all that Jesus said and did. The world couldn't contain all that truth. I could go on, but uh, if you look in verse 2, and he says this a lot, and, and we like to say this, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You can circle that in your Bibles. And is very important there in verse 2. That is Paul giving witness and testimony to the fact that Jesus is God. That the same grace and peace come from the same source that God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son are one, which is going to become very important when we relate back to verse 1 and we think about being in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll tie that to John 17 and 16 and 15, how Jesus gives a discussion about being one with Him as He's one with the Father, <clears throat> and then we're all one, and it's one big happy family, right? It's, it's, it's amazing. So anyways, what is grace? Say that a lot in the Bible. We say that a lot in church. What is grace? Grace is simply unmerited favor. And specifically here, it's unmerited favor towards sinners. And peace is a result of that favor. It's kind of what has been won or established or reconciled now that grace has been given towards sinners. So remember, as we go on here, that grace especially is unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Now, this is what we're going to look at <coughs> with the Thessalonians and with us. Wrote this statement. The church in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ is a truly converted and spiritually fruitful church truly converted and spiritually fruitful church and those two terms are actually synonymous that we'll see and it's and it's important to distinguish that because of this reality the satan roams around this earth parading himself as an angel of light and i am convinced and you have probably witnessed or experienced that there is no place uh, that he likes better to screw around and mess things up and wield his influence than the church of the living God or the supposed church of the living God. He loves to get in there and make people believe that they are worshiping him in spirit and truth when in fact they are worshiping something else. And what that turns out to be in, a, in our American context is self. So he takes people back to the garden. He said, you can be like God. Therefore, why don't you worship yourself, your abilities, the truth that you're created in his image. Therefore, you are a little God. You can be like him, do what he does. This is the lie that gets told in supposed churches in the world. And this is what we are, uh, well, this is what Paul is combating against when he commends the faith of the Thessalonian church. We need to understand especially in a, in a prosperous context, that a church is not um, shown to be true because of its prominence, because of its budget, because of its building, because of its members, or because of the prominence of its pastor or pastors. It is a church of Jesus Christ because it is bearing fruit as a, a people truly saved by Him, specifically and we're going to see what that fruit is and it really has nothing to do with those things i mentioned so first thing i want to investigate is how to be in how to be in how to be in with jesus how to be in God the Father. John 14, 23, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him 
and make our home with Him. Home with Him, dwelling with Him, tabernacling, taking up residence with who? Him. Who's Him? The one who keeps His word. John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. John 15, 18 through 19, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. We're, we're following a train of thought right now that says, okay, uh, this is the way to be in Jesus, in God the Father. He wants to abide with us and, and us with him. And, and that is mainly done by keeping his word, knowing his word, understanding his word, applying his word, learning his word. Okay, And, and one of the evidences of that is what we just read here, that the world loves its own, right? But the world didn't love me. Look at what they did to me. And one of the evidences that you are not of them, but in me, is that they hate you. Because darkness hates light, because it exposes it for what it really is. It exposes its works, it exposes what the truth really is, and darkness does not want to be uncovered. Therefore, if you are light by being in Jesus as he is light, the light of men, specifically John 1, then the world will hate you. They will hate your deeds, they'll hate what you say, they'll hate what you stand for, they'll hate how you love, they'll hate how you give, they'll hate how you deny what is untrue, they'll hate how you do not applaud uh, their sin or your sin, but that you fight against it with truth. They'll hate how you're compassionate when they think you should express justice. They'll hate how you Live all your life in light of a book that has words in it because they don't understand what truth is or they deny what truth is. It will hate you. John 16, 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It's important to be in Jesus because then you can have confidence of an overcoming or as Romans 8 says, of conquering through the things that the world does in its response to you as it hates you. <clears throat> so to be in Jesus is certainly to have tribulation and trouble, but to be in Jesus is also to have peace and the tools to overcome those things. And this is what is happening with the Thessalonian church. They are displaying how they are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ by the fact that the world hates them, is persecuting them, and how they are uh, expressing a life lived in peace, namely peace with God, and are understanding or beginning to understand how they overcome the world because Jesus overcame the world. John 17, 10 through 11, all mine are yours, Jesus is praying to the Father, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, as they may be one, even as we are one. So another way to talk about being in Christ is to be one with Christ. That's a kind of a synonymous term, right? You would understand if somebody said those different words to you, you would understand they mean the same thing. They're this intimate union with Jesus. His church even is spoken of as his, what, body. He is our head. We are so intimately related that we cannot be easily disconnected with him or each other. And in fact, we're going to read here in a second that there's going to be, uh, uh, that you and I are going to be one just as we are one with him and just as he is one with the Father and then that makes us all one. It's all one thing. His body, he is the head. John 17, 19 through 26. And for their sake, the church, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make, make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The most important part of us knowing Jesus is being in Jesus. The love of Father is in Jesus, directed towards Jesus. Blessing is for Jesus. Glory is in Jesus and for Jesus. And if he is saying that we are in him, then we're included in those good things that are his. In fact, we're called co-heirs with him in the book of Romans. We have to be this intimately related with him or else there is no righteousness for us. There is no glory for us. There is no love for us. There is no good for us. As Jesus has won, secured, and is those things, we have to be that closely tied to him or we don't have them. If Jesus alone is the righteousness of God revealed from heaven, then if we are not in him, then there is no righteousness that's a part of us. And if he's not in us. But if he's in us and we're in him, righteousness surrounds this filthy sinner. Then we have confidence in approaching the throne of grace. We have a confidence on the day of his second coming. Because it has nothing to do with who we are apart from Christ, but it has everything to do with who we are in Christ. So then everything gets directed to who he is. If he's righteous, if he's beloved by the Father, if he is all these things, and he has brought us in to himself, then we can have confidence that the Father will see those things as part of us as well. So you have to get comfortable and glory in the fact that you are in Christ, if in fact Christ is in you. And that would mean that you're converted. We use that word a lot. We think about that word a lot. Sometimes it sounds almost too religious, right? Because you can convert to a lot of things. You even hear people converting to Islam. But what do we mean when we say especially that a true church is a truly converted church? Well, I think in our context and in the biblical context, converted means that you give evidence of salvation. In verses 3 and 4, which we'll get to next week of this letter, and going back to 1 Thessalonians in verses 4 through 10, you see Paul giving thanks because there's evidence of salvation. Salvation would mean that they've truly been changed from a people who were not God's people to God's people. They've been converted from a state of unrighteousness to righteousness, right? They, they've been changed. They've been one substance made into a different substance. And part of the evidence that that has taken place, the only evidence that that's taken place, in the end, is that they endure to the end. Look at Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Mark 13, 13. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, we know from Philippians, right, that he who started a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We know from the golden chain uh, in Romans 8, 
28 through 33 or something like that, that glorification is sure. It's a past tense word in that passage that God will make these things happen. And we'll even see in this letter that he's the one who makes us worthy of this calling to which he's called us to, who makes us worthy of the kingdom of God. But Jesus says here twice that the one who endures to the end will be saved. I'm trying to assure you that God will make sure you make it to the end, but that it will be the only final uh, knowledge of who is saved, who is truly converted. The Thessalonians are giving evidence that they are going to endure to the end because it doesn't get much more difficult than people threatening your life for worshiping Jesus. And if you not only endure that, but bear fruit in the midst of that and receive the word of God as truth when people are threatening you not to receive it as truth, that's a pretty good indication that you're probably converted. So that's why you have such a thing as false conversions in the world. Because at one point in time, it was completely culturally acceptable for you to be a member of a Bible-believing church without ever having to give evidence of conversion. There was no threat to you. There was no great, great contrast to what it looked like to be moral versus be truly converted or saved. It all kind of jumbled together. But when you find yourselves in these kind of third world contexts or these persecuted contexts, there's a great dividing line. That's why persecution is oftentimes cleansing for the church. It, 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 it brings the reality of the truly converted together while people that were uh, tempted to be on the fringes or, or tempted to believe but not really embrace, uh, it gets rid of that. So you don't have any un converted influence in the church that has a voice for untruth and is still influenced by the lies of the evil one in most of their life. You know, John MacArthur is like the Forrest Gump in church history. He's just everywhere. Uh, he, was, he was there in the South during the Civil Rights Movement being arrested uh, with the rest of them, right, in, in that great movement. He was and he was uh, in the Soviet Union when the Iron Curtain fell. And he speaks about those people being terrified about that curtain falling. About there being no more Soviet Union. And you would think, what? You, you are terrified that uh, this communist regime's not going to reign like it was anymore? Yes, they were. You know why? Because they understood that once that curtain falls, and it is okay to be a church of the living God. Wolves will come in. And they will pollute and pervert the gospel as much as they can. Because there's no threat to them to be identified with the church of the living God anymore. So now they can come in and they can begin to work freely. But persecution oftentimes establishes the, the church in truth. And all that's left there are God's people who are sold out to him, devoted to him, and, and <coughs> desiring to abide with him no matter the cost. Confident in the fact of being uh, uh, more than conquerors, even through all of that that is threatening them, sword, peril, nakedness, famine, persecution, all of it. When you have just complete fruitful ground. Galatians 5, 16 through 20. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. <coughs> For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual morality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, 
as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. In other words, Paul is letting you know what it looks like to be unconverted what it, but, uh, compared to what it looks like to be truly converted. Now, in case we get proud of bearing the fruits of the Spirit and showing ourselves to be a truly converted people, here's what you need to understand also from Paul. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. All right. First Baptist Church of Holt is safe. We will be saved. We don't do this. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. This is what it means to be a truly converted church. Sanctified means to be made more holy. The blood of Jesus has washed you, and God is making you into his image. And you are, are bearing those fruits that were read about in Galatians 5, not perfectly, but they're beginning to be seen. They're budding. And it's given ev evidence that you've been justified before God by Jesus as he is completely righteous and justified by his goodness. And the spirit of God is now given to you to do those things that you at one point in time were not able to do. You were envious. You were drunk. You were taking part in all those wicked things that were, were read about. But then this happened. You know, we're going through Piglin's Progress with the men's group, and in the second act, Christian finds himself approaching finally the wicked, not the wicked, but the wicked wooden gate. And as he approaches the gate, and the gatekeeper is speaking with him, and the gatekeeper is going to pull him in, he approaches the gate like this. He calls himself wretched, he calls himself wicked. He understands that entrance through the gate is not his. He's not worthy of it. He's not deserving of it. He doesn't, it's just not even something that he can do. And then what happens? The gatekeeper rips him in through the gate. And it startles him. He's like, I, why'd you do that? I just told you who I was. And the gatekeeper ripped him in. This is true conversion. Approaching righteous, holy God, knowing your unworthiness, but recognizing that if He wills, you will be brought in by grace and mercy, despite your uncleanness. What's false conversion then? Luke 8, parable of the soils. Only one of those soils proved to be fruitful. The other soils, except for the one that was sown amongst the rocks, had some semblance of conversion. They sprung up even. They took hold of the word. They were like, yeah, okay, I believe this. I'll follow this. And then what happens? The cares of the world, riches, or persecution, good and bad things, choke them out. There's no root. There's no life coursing through those veins. There's growth not caused by God. They don't endure through those things. Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think one way to bring you comfort from that verse is to acknowledge that there is a proud way to enter the church, a way that comes to the wicket gate and doesn't really care to acknowledge the depths of their depravity, but simply wants to take hold of the get-out-of-hell-free card and find some sort of insurance policy for when they die. But the humble, contrite, broken spirit that approaches the gate is completely and utterly acceptable for mercy and grace to abide and enact a new heart. So that's one way you can distinguish that. Are, are you... Are you broken before him? Are you unworthy? Are you unworthy? 1 John 2, 18-19, Children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that, in, that the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that this is the last hour. Remember who was writing that? John. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have what? Continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. If Jesus is yours and you are his, then there is nothing more valuable than him, including your life. Jesus said, those who seek to save their life must lose it, and those who lose their life will find it in me. He has to be most valuable. If you love son or daughter or brother or children or mother more than me, you're not worthy of me, Jesus said. He is the treasure in the field that when the man found it, he, he, he went and sold everything he had to buy that field. Everything is worth him. That was the great experiment that happened with Job, right? Satan approaches God like God doesn't know what's going on or that God hasn't ordained what's going on. And he says, hey, let me have Job. I'll show you that he's not really yours. I'll show you that your blessing upon him is all that he cares about. Okay. Well, then take it from him. And then we find that, that Job, despite his uh, brokenness, despite his just utter destruction that's come upon his life and his despair. He hangs on by that thread because he knows, he knows that the Lord is true. He knows the Lord is good. He doesn't understand what's going on. He's trying to make sense of it. He can't make sense of it. And he finds in the end that the Lord is good and that the Lord is all-powerful and that the Lord is the Almighty and that you are right to always bank on him. What about being fruitful? Well, it's synonymous with being converted. If you are converted, you will be fruitful. John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's where that being in Christ comes into play. You can't do anything apart from him. That's why everything you do that is good in his name, he gets all the credit and you don't. Because apart from him, there would be none of that. Ephesians 2.10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Matthew 7, this is before that uh, discussion about, you know, there's going to be many come to me, say, Lord, Lord, on the last day, and I'm going to say, I don't know you. 
Matthew 7, 15 through 20. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are gates or grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the distressed tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. But then you get into that discussion we already read about. They're prophesying in his name. That's good, right? They're, they're uh, casting out demons in his name. That's good, right? Well, if you go to Acts 19 and you read about the sons of Siva, those were unsaved men that were trying to do something good in Jesus' name. Why? They were trying to gain fame and power for themselves. They were like Simon the Magician trying to buy the Holy Spirit for themselves. They weren't humble, broken before Jesus as unworthy looking to him as all their righteousness, all their hope, all their prize, all their glory. In Jesus, all of that is. Not in me. I'm not going to secure it and go my merry way without him. It's going to be all in him, for him, by him, through him, to him. Jesus says you'll recognize them by their fruits. James 2.18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. The Thessalonians are showing their faith or their example of true conversion. As Paul says in the first letter, I know God's chosen you. Why? Because you are bearing fruit in the midst of persecution. You received the word like this when it wasn't uh, beneficial for you to do so. In other words, you, you, you are looking forward to a glory that is not yet. You're not receiving the gospel because it's going to give you a, a step up in society, a step up in your business, a step up in whatever. You're receiving the gospel because it's true and it's your only hope. That's a truly converted church. And if you've received it in that way, you'll continue in that way. There will be no other way for you to go. You will be held captive under a new master that has set you free from the hard master of sin and death. You will be led forward into life and fruitfulness and faithfulness. You'll not be able to hold grudges. You'll not be able to not work on uh, reconciling with your brothers and sisters. You'll not be able to continue in sin. You will sin still, but you won't be able to live in it. In other words, God won't leave you alone. And I always tell people there's some guarantees of when you become a children of God. Number one, he won't leave you alone. He will discipline his kids. He'll make sure that they move into glorification. And even now, that they even now begin to glorify him by reflecting his image, by bearing fruit as being connected to him. Now let's return to verse 2. I know I'm, I'm going a while here, but these are really important things that I want us to see. Let's talk about grace for a second. I, talk, I told you grace is unmerited favor, right? So let's, let's read these passages in light of that. 2 Corinthians 1, 11 through 12, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but what? But by the grace of God, or by the unmerited favor of God, and supremely so toward you. God exercising supreme unmerited favor towards the Corinthians through Paul and to Paul, so that when they pray and exercise fruit in the Spirit, God will get the thanks through their prayers. Hebrews 2.9, But we see him for a little while, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, or by the unmerited favor of God, he might taste death for everyone. Jesus is dying for everyone because God has had unmerited or unwarranted favor towards us. 
1 Corinthians 15, 10, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but what? The unmerited favor of God that is with me. If God's favor is with you, then you will be fruitful. You will be able to do works in his name. Which results in our hearts and with our brothers and sisters, namely with God, peace. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The <laughs> greatest need, the most anxious thought or reality in all the universe is not being at peace with a the righteous judge. If there is no peace there, that's really bad news. But through Jesus, through grace, unmerited favor, what has happened now? Peace. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life reconciliation is another way to talk about peace peace with God if we don't have peace with God we are above all people to be worried to be fearful to be dreadful to be terrified but if unmerited favor has been shown a people of God, so that they become truly converted, and, and there will be peace, and nothing else is greater than that. So then, if that, the greatest thing that could ever happen to you, peace with God, has been won and, and solidified by Jesus, then what greater worry is there? What greater trouble is there? You can endure like the Thessalonians. And you'll endure to the end. In fact, you will bear fruit in the midst of those trials and tribulations because the greatest worry, the greatest fear has been destroyed. The fear of death, that's gone. Fear of judgment, that's gone. Fear of God in the sense that he will destroy you, that's gone. What's left? Paul says, what can man do to me? Kill the body? Or maybe Jesus said that. Fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. If there's peace with God, that's all not a, not a problem. Last passage here. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled or brought peace to us, us to himself, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Right, and then we all know this, verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see that last phrase? In him we become the righteousness of God. If a church is in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That means that grace has come to them and peace now characterizes them so that everything else is small potatoes. And that being so, they will be able to endure to the end because he who lives in us is greater than he who is in the world. So we're reveling, and Paul is establishing uh, his, his tone in this letter with the fact, the fact 
that as far as he can tell, the church of the Thessalonians is in God our Father. Therefore, grace and peace may and will and have come from God and Jesus. So take heart. So when he begins to speak about the judgment to come, the second coming of Christ, they're not worried. But they can hope. And hope is what he's imparting to them through these words. So I pray that you would read these letters in light of that and that you would walk away with that. And that any anxiety or any trouble that you feel when you read these things that Paul's saying in these letters that you would get some answers for. You'd seek some peace in. And so I pray that you'd respond to our Lord now um, on behalf of these words, through these words, and then we'll stand and sing together.